For scripture reading this morning, turn to Ephesians 5, and I will be reading verses 1 through 21. Ephesians 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, uh, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually, sexually immoral or impure or, is, or who is covet, covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But then, but when anything is exposed by the light, the light it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you, how you uh, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine for this is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of, rever- out of reverence for Christ. Please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Our text this morning is verses 7 through verse 14, uh, but I will begin at verse 1 and read through 14. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, 
but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. As I was looking through chapter 2 here, um, personally I was probably a little more focused on the next three verses, because I think they're verses that have been possibly misused, and so in my pride, I was going to set them right, you see. But as I focused and studying on this passage, um, it, it became something uh, deeply affecting to me. The main idea of what we want to consider this morning is that the source and center of the Christian life is an absolute surety in the faithfulness and sufficiency of Christ. I believe that's what these verses are attempting to teach us, and uh, we'll look through and and see if we can find that. The source and center of the Christian life is an absolute surety in the faithfulness and sufficiency of Christ. And we look at two different portions of that. And the first is, a life lived with Christ will look like Christ. And secondly, a life lived with Christ will be built on the foundation of the sufficiency of Christ. This passage contains some interesting language. We have some very black and white thinking, uh, pardon my pun, but we have darkness and light. We have hate and love. And if you look at verses 12 to 14, you have some, the, the language he's using there is not of possibility. It's of truth, of absolute truth. And so when he says things like, your sins are forgiven, there's no quibbling. It's not a maybe. It's not a hopeful. It is a 
solid, sure reality. When he says, you have overcome the evil one. When he says, you know the Father. How many of us would would answer that question? Do you know God? Do you know the Father? How many of us say, yep, I know the Father. Absolutely. That's what he says. You know the Father with absolute surety. And so, I think too often we live our lives without this as our foundation. And so, we, we're not so sure about that. We're still trying to figure that out. And I think that's a part of what life is. Part of growing in maturity is becoming more and more understanding of that foundation. But those truths are the truths that we build our life upon. And so first off, he begins uh, by saying, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. And he has this interaction between a new commandment and an old commandment. And so while he says this is, this is nothing new, but it is sort of new, I think what he's pointing to is that, that God's original plan was not insufficient or inadequate. And so as, as God worked out himself through the law, through the children of Israel, that was not plan one that failed. It was not plan A that had some problems. It was not insufficient or inadequate. Jesus was God's original plan. And the law and his people Israel were the means by which he brought Jesus to earth in the fullness of time. I think here he's really referring to God's original command to humanity that we find in Genesis 1. He says there, in the image of God, he created them. And he says to them, be like me. Be my image bearer. Be fruitful. Multiply. Rule over the earth. Be like me. And if we look through history, we'll find, even in the children of Israel, that we as humans generally do a pretty poor job of looking like God. Uh, We've found ways to um, look very unlike God. And so Jesus was God's plan to set that to rights. The law that we see in Leviticus is, is not God's list of preferences. It's a detailed, in way, detailed way in which the children of God were to reflect the image of God to their world. The second phrase we see in this passage is, this is a new commandment because it is true in him and in you. So this new commandment applies to us because it's first true and fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the old, the old commandment, and he represents the new commandment, and it is first in him, and then it flows into us. And then he begins multiple verses here where he refers to darkness and light and hating versus loving. 
And this is where we see that if we are in Christ, if Christ is in us, then it changes us. If we love, if we abide in his light, if we love in, like Christ, then there is no stumbling. And we see the world as it's meant to be. If we walk in his light, we can then see clearly to be like him. On the converse, we have hate. We have walking in darkness. We have a person who has no idea of direction. Someone who is blinded to reality. Now these are fairly polarizing words, but hate really is merely the absence of love. I think sometimes we look at hate as a, an aggressive action of anger, and while that surely is hateful, hate really is any absence of love. It's not necessarily the aggressive seeking of someone's harm. Hate may be, in fact, merely not seeking someone's good. At its base, hate is a form of self-love. You see, if I hate someone else, I'm setting myself up as the one who is the center. Because it's what I see, it's what I feel. It's that person driving 35 miles an hour this morning on the way to church. They're, they're getting in my way. By disliking them and their actions, I'm preferring myself. And he presents here this, this light and darkness as a means of finding direction. And this hate and love is kind of blended in with it. So it really is the way of love that allows us to see truly and clearly in the world. Whereas hate is the blindfold of self that blocks our vision. It says, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks in the darkness, and he doesn't know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eye. And all of us have had a, a practical experience of this. Just last night, I was downstairs in the basement turning out lights to head up the steps, and I accidentally turned out all the lights, not knowing that the hall light wasn't on. So all of a sudden, I'm in full darkness. Now, I built this house. I know every inch of this house, right? So I should be able to walk, and I should be able to find my way. But all of a sudden, it's like, what if somebody left some shoes here? What? I'm completely blinded. And I'm stumbling until I find a light switch, and then all of a sudden, it's all gone. And I think hate has the same effect on us. We see someone overcome with hate and retribution. They really just stumble around and make a mess of things. And, and sometimes we see people in that, in that situation, and we say, what, can't you just see what you're doing? Can't you see the wreck you're making of your family? Can't you see the mess you're making of your life? Well, the reality is, is no, they're not. They've got a blindfold on, and they're stumbling around, and they cannot see. And how often do we recognize that reality in our own lives? But love 
is what allows us to see clearly. Love is when we place others in front of ourselves, when we prefer others over ourselves. Love is the flashlight that allows us to see clearly and not stumble. Interestingly, John represents hate and love as a, as a binary reality. You cannot mildly love someone. You cannot mildly hate someone. It's binary. And we see that in Jesus. He didn't, he didn't love us partially. He loved us to the death on the cross. And if we go back to chapter 1, we see a number of similar statements. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we're walking in darkness, claiming fellowship, versus walking in the light and having fellowship with man. And it's the blood of Christ that brings that about. In, in verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we make ourselves to be a liar. So if we choose the way of self-love or hate, we, we can't see our way. But if we confess, if we, in love, own up to ourselves, then Christ comes in and makes his abode with us, and we then have clarity. The common denominator in, in these statements is the centrality of Christ. John is making the argument here that if, if you've met Jesus, if, if his love has impacted you, if his love has affected you, then your life will begin to appear like his. And as we come like him, we reflect more fully the image of God. And so it is first in him. So as we know him, as we are like him, then it becomes to fullness in us. The same reality was with Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus was not some autonomous person within the universe. He was the Son of God. And as the Son of God, when he was on earth, he loved like God. And so Jesus wasn't a new form of God's love. It wasn't the new version of God's love. He was God's love. And he loved like God loved. And he granted mercy like God granted mercy. And he was obedient to his Father. And he forgave as his Father forgives. And so Jesus on earth represented the image of his Father. In the same way, we will be identified as children of God because we will love like Christ. We will look at the, the downtrodden. We will look at the misfortunate. And we will... Love them as Christ loved them in his life. We will reject evil like him. The devil comes to Jesus and says, you can have all of these things. You can swear your fealty to me and gain all of these things. And that's the same thing. It's the same lie the devil tells every single one of us. 
You know, if, if, you, if you do this, you can have all of these things. No, Jesus rejected that evil. And we, as we are like Christ, will reject evil like he did. We will know ourselves like he knows ourselves through honesty and confession. We will suffer for righteousness like him. We will love lavishly like him. We will bear the shame of others. And we will not cast shame on others. Because that's how he was towards us. And so, if we are in Christ, if we are a member of his body, if we are the brothers and sisters of Christ, then we will begin to look like him. And secondly, the reason all of this happens is because a life lived with Christ will be built on the foundation of the sufficiency of Christ. He says, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you because... This is the center truth. I'm tr- I want you to learn something that's, that's valuable. He says in verse 2, I'm, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. I'm writing you these things so that you may not be opposed to God. I'm writing you these things so you can be in step with Christ and be as he is. This foundation is, is similar to a house's foundation. Any house builder knows that if you get the foundation wrong, you can do absolutely anything you want to the remainder of the house, and you'll never fix the problem. Um, I'm sure some of you have read the story of a multi-story um, residential tower in San Francisco, and somebody got the foundation wrong. And This is a 50- or 60-story tower. And it is slowly sinking into the ground in a rather not square manner. And there really is almost nothing to be done. The foundation is unsecure. And the same is true if we don't get these realities correct, if we don't build our life on the foundation of the sufficiency of Christ, we will build our life on something else. And it will not stand. So within this passage, he gives three different groups of people. He says, little children, he says, fathers, and he says, young men. And as is mostly in places like this, many people disagree over what those things mean. Um, I am probably persuaded by the argument that this is two groups of people. Uh, The little children refers to Chapter 2, verse 1, where he refers, refers to the entire church as my little children. And I think he's saying that in the same way here. And then you have those who are mature and those who are young in the faith. So you have those two groups. However you read those, I think you can make the case that all of us belong in these categories in one way or another. Um, he's not making exclusive statements, so unless you fit the category of father, that phrase doesn't work for you. But it's, it's universal truths that are applied specifically in that particular context. 
But he makes three or four statements here that really are earth-shattering. And so let's, let's begin with the first one. He says, My little children, your sins are forgiven. Think about that for a second. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. This is a present reality. They have been present, forgiven, a past, re- a past event. It's a sure statement. It's a solid statement. There's no quibbling. There's no conditions. There's not fine print on the bottom of that. Your sins have been forgiven. He's saying Jesus' blood, the sacrifice on the cross, was sufficient to forgive your sins. Again, think about that deeply. If you are here and and you're not a believer, the message of that is, with faith in Christ, your sins can be forgiven. And we beg of you to come and, and bow yourself to his lordship and be forgiven. And if you are here and you are a believer, your sins are forgiven. This is not a hope of forgiveness in some future event. This is a has been forgiven. This is not a plan of forgiveness. I'm going, you know, if someone is in prison because of wrongdoing and they get let out, they're going to have a plan of probation and they got to see this officer and they've got to pay this money and they've got to do this. This is not a plan of forgiveness. This is forgiveness. Freely granted. This is not forgiveness based on your merit. It's not something you earned. It's not something you came into the good favor of God about. This is forgiveness based on Christ's merit. This is not forgiveness granted to you because of your blood, sweat, toil, and tears. But this is forgiveness bought with the spilled blood of Christ. This is not forgiveness bought with your money or your time. This is forgiveness that flows from the wealth of heaven in the person of Christ. This forgiveness is not a construction project. This is a completed house. Brother, sister, your sins are forgiven. I wonder how often we sway from that reality and we're still trying to get our sins forgiven instead of living out of the reality that they are. Every other form of religion or belief in our world attempts to find a way 
a way of discipline, a way of self-denial, a way of meditation, a way of obedience, to earn something. And Jesus says, believe on me and your sins are forgiven. We don't walk the Christian life attempting to earn that reality. It's something that's given to us by faith. Secondly, you know him who is from the beginning. Again, we we look at our world roaming around, wondering for meaning, wondering to find out who we were. How did we get here? What is our purpose? In Jesus... We know him who is from the beginning. We know him who said, let there be light. We know him who said, let the water and the land be separated. We know him who said, birds start flying, fish start swimming. We know him who is the story of history. We don't have to live in this attempting to find meaning. We know him who is from the beginning. And that is the center of our meaning. By your connection with Christ, you know the creator of heaven and earth. And he invites you to come and dine. He invites you into relationship. He invites invites you into daily communion. He invites you to walk with him, to talk with him. This is not meant to merely be a textbook. It is a life lived with him. And he invites you to come and know him. Richard Lovelace says, It is an item of faith that we are children of God. And there is plenty of evidence in us against it. The faith that surmounts this evidence is enabled to warm itself at the fire of God's love. Instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources is actually the root of holiness. We are not saved by the love we exercise, but by the love we trust. He who is from the beginning invites us to come and exist and fellowship and to warm ourselves by the fire of his love. Thirdly, you have overcome the evil one. I wonder if it would make a difference in our fight against our sin if, if, our, if our attitude and if our actions were driven by the fact that Christ has defeated them. Doesn't that change our outlook? Does that change the, the standpoint with which we fight? This is not a battle that might not be won. If you are in Christ, the evil one is defeated, and he will bear you up and bring you along in that defeat of sin. In the end, 
Jesus throws Satan into the lake of fire and defeats him once and for all. And John is telling us that that reality is true in your life. That future reality of Satan being broken forever can be borne out in our lives now. And so we fight against our sin, not from a possibility that we might fail, but from the reality that his death is certain and sure, and he has been defeated. It's a different posture. And finally, he says, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. You are strong, and the word of God abides in you. How many of you feel strong? How many of you in your, your spiritual life, and, and you know, if, if we were to do a check-in, how many of us would say, my Bible reading is perfect, my prayer life is strong, everything's great, I'm strong. It's not our language. Because of ourselves, we're not, but it's in Him that we are. And as the Word of God abides in us and shapes us and changes us and brings about the full fruition of His image, in that we are strong. So as we close, I invite you to consider what is the foundation of your faith. And we could consider the social realities of of each of us and what our communities of faith gave us as a foundation. Maybe you grew up with no foundation of faith. And I I think you ought to do that. I think you ought to consider what is the foundation that I'm operating out of. Is it it this one? Or or have I substituted other things? Have I substituted my efforts? Have I substituted my church and family history? Have I attempted to find merit in my own life and my own places? I think that's a, a fruitful exercise for you to consider What is my foundation? What is the center of the Christian life that I am living out of? And this passage, I think, gives us the model of what it should be. Is your foundation that your sins have been forgiven, that you know him who is from the beginning? Because if it is, then that life that is lived with Christ will look like Christ. You see, if you want to build, if you want to build a skyscraper, you don't put the foundation of a ranch house in the ground. You put the foundation of a skyscraper in the house. So if you want to build a life If you want to live the life that honors Christ, then you have to start with the foundation of the life that looks like Christ and build on that. You see, if that foundation is incorrect, if my foundation at the end is in in my own abilities and I, I 
think that's probably my faulty foundation that I've got to continue to be digging at. I can understand. I can know. I can figure things out on my own. I don't need God's ways. Well, that's not a foundation I can patch. That's one you got to take a backhoe to and dig out and pour the foundation of truth into. So I invite you to consider for yourselves, what is your foundation? What have you planted your life upon? What have you built your house of faith on? And is it on the foundation of Christ and His sufficiency? Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess our tendency to attempt to be self-sufficient, to attempt to, to build our house of faith on our own efforts, on our own will, on our own decisions, on our own truth. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to consider what we have been building upon. Father, may we destroy the foundations that are faulty and failing. And may we build on the foundation of Christ alone, of the certainty of His defeat of sin, and the certainty of His goodness to us, and the certainty that of His Word, He forgives our sins. Father, would you do this work in our hearts? Would your Spirit lead us and guide us into truth? Father, do this for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.